and Human Services Administration on Aging and other sources. And she's authored several articles and journals relating to Alzheimer's disease, deliberation and communication, and testing of decision support websites. Dr. Hoffman has been asked to deliver presentations on aging in the elderly, including exploring the role of patients' decision support in geriatric mental health, helping older adults make well-informed personal health care decisions, and web-based decision support tools for individuals considering advanced planning and long-term care. So please help me welcome Aubrey. Good afternoon, everyone, and thank you for the opportunity to speak to you today. As Laura mentioned, um, I'm a decision scientist by training, and I moved into the field of dementia and Alzheimer's about three years ago. So I'm excited to talk to you about some of the strategies and the evidence-based interventions that are out there to help families. So the aim today is to talk a little about what is this thing called patient's decision support, that we do a lot of it here at Dartmouth. Um, it's kind of a catchy title late, lately up there with shared decision-making and informed patient choice. We'll go over what those terms mean. And also, I'll, I hope to describe to you and briefly show you some examples of what the available decision aids are that can help patients and families with Alzheimer's. Patient family decision support is defined as an evidence-based intervention for patients or caregivers who are facing a choice between two or more medically relevant options. It does extend a bit into more community decisions as well. It may not be a medical treatment, but it can be something like discontinuing driving, which certainly has some medical implications for both the person and the family. It's more than patient education. There are wonderful patient education sites out there. I was talking to Lenore uh, Pope Jackson about the Alzheimer's Association site, which has great patient education on it, but nothing that really provides structured, evidence-based guidance and how to engage with really difficult decisions where you're trading off some uncertainty, you're trading off risk, you're trading off life choices and goals of care, as was brought up earlier. So uh, the five steps of good decision-making that are commonly talked about are pretty much what you'd expect. Get the facts, how to become well-informed, get good information, and how to avoid bad information, which is equally important. We've all had people come in with some pretty amazing misinformation that we have to work our way out of a lot of times. To clarify your preferences, and sometimes people will say values-based decision-making. And what they mean by that is weighing the benefits and the risks and the costs of each option and it's the value of those things to you personally. So when you're counseling someone about a decision, you really need to think about how can we help them think how this, what this matters to them personally. As Bob um, Lovitz was talking about at the very beginning today. Considering resources, often we gloss over, we like to provide very good medical information, but we really need to acknowledge not only their financial resources, but in the case of dementia, their intellectual resources, their emotional resources, and then as many people have highlighted the familial and emotional support resources. Do you have people that are pressuring you or are they supporting you? And how can we work with the, re with the, the resources that you have available to achieve your care goals? Making a well-informed decision. Good part of, of good decision-making is to make a decision. Um, it's an actually a very hard part to get to a lot of times. And once you've begun to make a decision, one of the key steps in decision-making is helping someone form an action plan to take action. We've all had those people that have come in and talked about, made a decision, and they walk out the door, and as, as Dr. Bateman pointed out, you never see them again. We don't know if they've taken action at all. A lot of times with dementia, we're talking about advanced care planning, so there might be something that's a plan for now, what we're going to do in the next week, month, year, 
or, and there might be a plan for later. They were talking about the prescription for driving. When it gets to this point, when I've had this happen, then we'll talk about stopping or limiting driving. Why do we do decision support? On the psychology realm, we talk about something called decisional conflict. And this is common, most more for caregivers um, in the cases of dementia or caregivers in general when you're talking about end of life. It's intense and overwhelming anxiety, worry, stress, anticipatory regret, fear, and burden. And sometimes guilt gets thrown in there too, that anticipatory guilt. They don't want to take a decision, make a decision because they don't want to bear the responsibility or feel guilty that I put mom in a nursing home when I promised her that I wouldn't. Um, of course, linked to stress. Stress, of course, linked to insomnia, poor nutrition, anxiety, and depression. So not only are we trying to help someone with dementia make good decisions in, as early in the process as possible, but also for that caregiver's own health, we're trying to alleviate their burden and their stress and make sure that they're capable to do good caregiving um, and take away this burden of, of decision making. The stress of increasingly difficult decisions, a recent study showed that 72% of them rated this as their most difficult um, and uh, most difficult burden that led to premature institutionalization of a patient, which is a horrible phrase, but means putting someone into a nursing home before they really thought was necessary. So after they did and they looked back, they, they had a lot of regret with that decision. And they said, well, really, I was just overwhelmed by the decisions. If someone could have helped me manage those decisions, I wouldn't have had to do this. I was just too stressed out. I needed a break. In dementia care, we know there's over $200 million spent each year over this decision around long-term care, and 75% of that is taxpayers' money. So this is a significant reason that we need to help people make good decisions and plan ahead so that they don't have to spend down their estates and they don't have to, they can do what they want with their resources. We know that only 25% make well-informed decision plans or care plans, advanced care plans. Um, we have a number up now of about 42 in a couple states, 42%. By and large, most states are still averaging down around 20%. What is patient or family decision support supposed to do? It's supposed to prepare someone for discussions with their care team. It's not intended to replace a clinical dis um, discussion or a consultation or a care team meeting, but to prepare them so that they can be well informed. It helps to improve their understanding of medical information and also to build self-efficacy. We know that caregiver self-efficacy in the physical aspect is very well tied to their self-efficacy in their relationship and communication um, in the emotional and the intellectual support and the decision-making that they're doing. It did start in hospitals. It started by nurses originally who were trying to help people who they saw just suffer with these decisions again and again. Uh, but it's increasingly available now in community resource centers. It's best when it's provided by a person, as we all expect. But, however, um, you can use some tools called patient's decision aids. These are tools that provide high-quality medical evidence and decision-making support. So I mentioned before, they focus on a specific decision. They're not general health education. And they help prepare but don't replace that consultation. It's all about having a discussion, starting a communication. The International Patient Decision Aid Standards Group, which I'm a member of, um, does require some things for these decision aids to distinguish them from advertisements. Um, and one of them is that it's up-to-date, plain language, balanced, unbiased information. We are not trying to persuade someone about a decision. We're trying to help them become well-informed and really weigh their options. There always, there's also always the support in those five decision-making steps. There's over 300 topics out there now. Uh, most of them that you would think of here at the Center for Shared Decision-Making at Dartmouth, which is a wonderful resource, um, are around more medical decisions, breast and cancer treatment, 
osteoarthritis, hip and knee surgeries, those sorts of things. There is a library out there, um, and I will send these out with Laura so you guys will have these resources. I know no way you could see that little URL up there, but this library is available. And I just wanted to point out that the third item, fourth item down is Alzheimer's disease. And you see there's just three listed there, but I'm going to skip for a second. We have a Center for Shared Decision Making here at Dartmouth. There's 300 topics out there. Only three are categorized under Alzheimer's, but I'd say there's quite a few that also apply both for them and for the family, and sometimes for us, <laughs> if we stop and think about it. You might be also be interested in some of these yourself. Things like back conditions, depression, end-of-life management. All of those apply in dementia. They may be unique, and you may have extra aspects to discuss, but they also apply. So what's the evidence? Do these work? We have over 115 randomized clinical trials of patients' decision aids. The irony is that there's more trials of the decision material than there is of the treatments themselves most often. Uh, we know that they improve knowledge. They reduce this decisional conflict. There's no effect that they don't bias people's preferences or choices for what treatment they want. We, people do tend to sift out into different directions. And they improve active engagement in decision making, taking action, not just pontificating about it, but taking action. They improve communication, improve satisfaction with their decision, which is often important in the clinical realm when we talk about things like informed consent becoming informed patient choice. If you've gone through a good decision-making process, several repeated studies have shown that you're less likely to sue your doctors. That includes the family, um, nurses, clinicians, hospital, nursing home centers. Um, once you've engaged in that kind of communication, it's been documented, you have a relationship there. You're much less likely to um, feel that sort of regret and guilt and anger afterwards, even if the outcomes don't go as you've chosen. There's usually also improved congruence between the patient's preference and the treatment received and, and the discussion between the patient and family members, not only the primary family caregiver, but those helicopter family members that come in from all over the country for a weekend. When you can engage in this sort of shared decision making where you get the whole family on the phone for a teleconference and do good decision support with them, um, that's a way to also make sure that everybody's congruent. We talked a lot about discordance and denial earlier. This is one um, possible evidence-based intervention that you can use or strategy you can use to try to engage them. I mentioned there is an International Patient Decision Aid Standards Collaboration, and I'll send out the link for that. So you can double check and see when you see something and you think, you know, is this a real tool or is this just something that another group, um, I hesitate to say insurance company because there's some good ones out there, but um, that has come up that's really supposed to bias someone towards their product. The International Patient Decision Aid Standards offers a good housekeeping seal of approval for things that have been studied and been shown to be um, very effective for patients. We do have a Center for Shared Decision Making here at Dartmouth. If you happen to be in this area, I know people have come from all over. It started in 1999 and it allows patient family walk-ins or physician referrals. They provide trained decision counselors, patients' decision aids in all of these topics. They have a private viewing room where someone can sit right down then with the, with the decision counselor and either look through a worksheet or a video, whatever type of decision aid they want to look at. Or they, it's a lending library. You can take them home. And they just offer them for everybody to take home. It's no cost to anyone. So let's describe some of those available decision aids. In terms of dementia, there's, there's 300 topics out there. How many are there just for dementia? There's eight publicly available. And I always cringe at that because I know that there's another 20 that are available in research trials. So um, if you have an interest in some of these, please let me know. I know all the developers uh, and many of them are very happy to share their products just so that people have good information that we know has been studied well. Now, you probably can't read them all up here. We'll walk through these real quickly because I know people are going to want to get out here as soon as possible. Avoid that rush. Um, but 
they range in everything from whether to take memory medications to long-term care, which you'd expect, really popular topic, and then several on advanced care planning. So the first one was developed over in the UK, and it was a dementia patient's decision aid about cholinesterase inhibitors. And this was developed for clinicians, primarily. I have a copy here in paper that you can see. So it's a little wordy on the front, but the goal was to come up with some sort of graph that you could talk to people and be able to show them front and back one page. These are the benefits, these are the risks. So out of 100 people, these 17 people did benefit from taking cholinesterase inhibitor. These seven had no effect, and the rest of the people, their symptoms got worse whether or not they took a, a medication. Very quick, easy visual that people could look at. Um, we talk a little bit about the, the visual that's used here, smiley faces. They've done some studies on what things are available, and someone even did a, a 100 little brains turning colors, which I thought was rather adorable. I won't show the video right now, especially since Dr. Bateman's made me tear up. The one video is good. It's enough. Um, but if you do have a chance to look at the longtermcare.gov, we were involved in helping them redesign their website. This is put on by the uh, Department of Health and Human Services and the Administration on Aging. And it was a two-year project to shape their entire website with good decision support. There's a, a cute little animated video on there uh, that helps people think about the good steps of decision making. And it's intentionally cute. It's intentionally motivational and uplifting. Uh, there's a lot of good science behind it. It's short, five minutes. Um, so a nice, easy video to refer people to, to think about how do you make good decisions? What are some examples? What are some things you should be thinking about? They, of course, are motivated to help you think really about long-term care, but it could apply to just about anything. Ottawa, the University of Ottawa, has some of the lead researchers in this in the entire world. Uh, and we've worked with them on developing some decision aids. This is, again, another one-page worksheet that goes through those same steps. So it has a front page that's providing information side-by-side, -side, benefits for receiving care at home, receiving care in a residential facility. It has people engaged by thinking about, if you were thinking about reasons to choose care at home, how important are each of these factors? And everything that's on these has come through, come from systematic reviews of the literature, it's come through surveys of patients, of caregivers, of clinicians, to identify what are the factors that help people choose one way or another, um, and narrow down which ones really change the decision and help people think about those. So it also provides um, the step three, which was consider your resources. It helps you think about who else is involved in this decision. And because this is about long-term care, there's really a question about is there someone, are there people supporting you to either stay at home or to move, or are the people pressuring you, which becomes a major factor in this decision. And then there's a test that's commonly uh, administered called, are you sure? And it asks you to think about, do you have enough knowledge? Are you clear about what matters most to you personally? Do you have enough support? And do you feel sure or certain about the choice that you're about to make? Following that, if there's some steps you need to take and immediately get someone to, to engage in trying to take some action, what are the next things you need to do? Maybe you need to talk to someone, you need to see your financial counselor, you need to see your clinician and make an appointment. Let's help them move forward and take action. Mayo, which is well known for their electronic um, online resource center for their patients, great online patient education, has started adding decision aids. This one happens to be for long-term care as well. I think it's a bit wordy, quite frankly, and it's not very engaging, but it is very short and simple and straightforward. It's that page plus these questions, which can be very useful if you're in consultation. They have the advantage of having little tablets in their doctor's office and can say, let's read through this and talk about these couple questions. There are um, three decision aids developed by the group HealthWise in collaboration with Dartmouth, and we do use those here. We've been working with them for, uh, gosh, about 15 years now. 
Um, and these are available as worksheets. Originally, we have little booklets, but they've now also become online. They've made this, this um, format available for all of their decision aids. Same thing you would expect. Step one is get the facts, balanced presentation. Step two is compare options, and it does side-by-side -side comparisons, the, what, what the procedures are, what the risks are, what the benefits are, reasons you might choose one or the other. And that has a little sliding scale here where people can think about how important is this to me, how important is that to me. There's a, another sliding scale that asks people to think about, if you had to decide right now, which way are you leaning, and how much are you leaning that way? That's very helpful, usually, for family members to see. We joke about um, Annette O'Connor's the grandmother of the field, and she and her five siblings had the task of trying to decide for mom, who had dementia, whether or not to move her into a nursing home, um, or assisted living at the time. And she's a very stalwart woman, and they thought for sure it was, you know, I'm going to die in, in my home with my dog, no matter what, don't you dare try to move me. And they went in, they did one of these with her, being a good researcher, and it turns out she was very, very strong, I need to move. Shocked them all. They had no idea. And she said, you know, I was a caregiver for my mom, and I would never, ever allow any of my children to do that for me, which is something we're seeing generationally in, in sort of the 40s and 50s right now, that this group has gone through that burden of having young children and a parent to care for, and they don't ever want to put their children in that place. So sometimes having this on paper, where someone can do it without a face-to-face, eye-to-eye contact, and then getting together to talk about it, can be really eye-opening for families. It's a good strategy. Um, this does have a self-quiz. All of theirs have a self-quiz to make sure that you know the facts. And it pops up if you answer incorrectly. Actually, even if you answer correctly, it pops up little reinforcement boxes to make sure you get the right information. So we want to make sure that people aren't walking away misinformed in any way. And it produces a printable summary. And again, we're not, it does not predict anything. It is just a summary of what they have responded so that they can go have a conversation. So for any decision, there's something called the Ottawa Personal Decision Guide that just walks through these steps and it's blank. So if you come up against something you're not sure about, um, you know, whether to take 91 or 93 home. <laughs> um, <coughs> excuse me. We do have a guide for that. So in summary, I have a little bit more I want to show you, but I just want to make sure I stop here and say that decision support is an evidence-based intervention. We love using that phrase, but we do know that this works very well to help people who are overwhelmed, worried, and burdened about their decision-making, particularly caregivers and family members. Decision aids are tools. They're just tools. They don't replace anything, but they're good tools to help people become more informed, to foster realistic expectations, which I think has been one of the absolute gems of these tools. It's just helping people realistically think about and get a good sense of what's going to happen. To clarify their personal preferences, to gather their resources and be prepared, and to guide discussions with the family, the clinical team, the advisors, etc. So I'm going to ask the question, what's missing? This is what I struggled with when I first came here. Current decision aids are great. However, they tend to focus on one patient making one decision at the hospital. And anyone who's worked with dementia knows we have multiple decisions, multiple decision makers, and that decision-making responsibility can change and even be brought in. Outside people can be brought in. Um, and it happens in multiple locations. Half the decisions that I'm making with people aren't at the hospital. They aren't with Bob Santulli, as great and wonderful as he is. It is the driving decision at home. So what do we need? We need some high-quality, evidence-based decision aids that work across the stages of dementia. And that's what we're working on right now. So the, the questionnaire that you have um, just asks 10 questions about what you would see as the most difficult decisions, 
where you might want to have tools, what types of tools would be useful in your group, your practice, your um, assisted living facility, wherever you happen to be working, visiting nursing association, what would actually be useful for you? Is it a one-page paper that just helps you show some risks to people? Is it something online? Is it something virtual that allows long-distance caregivers to get on so you don't have to do these, these crazy phone calls, you can get everybody on at the same time? Is it just having that documentation so that your business, office, clinic has documentation that you've shown this person good information, you've talked with them, and they've made a decision? If you have a chance, if you could fill those out, it'd be greatly appreciated. There is an online version as well, but I would suggest the paper version because it's shorter. <laughs> if you could leave them on the table, they're totally voluntary, they're totally anonymous. Um, my poor research assistant will have to enter them into the database, so we won't know who answered them. Um, we are working on 10 to 15 decision aids. They are going to be interactive, they are going to be online. Uh, I will show you a couple screenshots of the first one we're working on right now. And our purpose is to create things that really do tailor information and support to both patients and caregivers for each decision at the right times, providing the right care to the right person at the right time. And we are working with families and caregivers to develop these. A lot of these were developed by uh, people in policy positions. We're really trying to engage people, human people. I want something that's meaningful, usable, sustainable. So the top five decisions thus far, which hopefully won't bias your survey too much, whether to take memory medications always comes up. Whether to bring in respite care or home care. So this, this question around privacy and autonomy versus safety and security um, and getting a break for the caregiver the responsibility duty question. If, when, to limit and stop driving, as Dr. Bateman um, described for us very well, and then if, when, to move to residential long-term care, long care, and which end-of-life or advanced care options to plan to choose. So this is something we're working on right now is with the Department of Health and Human Services Administration on Aging on Long-Term Care. And it talks about are you choosing the best long-term, looking to choose the best long-term care services or financial plan or both, are you choosing for yourself or someone else? And are you choosing for now, you know, the crisis choice? Or are you planning ahead? Um, there are, are some initiatives around helping people be able to set aside tax-free money. The Class Act was one, but there are others as well um, to help them plan ahead for long-term care services. And a lot of that was engaged in this decision aid. And it walks through the five steps that you'd expect. Getting the facts, deciding what matters most, considering resources, making a well-informed decision, and forming an action plan. So getting the facts, it some, presents some really plain language, easy to understand information. In graphs, it also has some interactive side-by-side -side tables, just like you'd go to Best Buy or Amazon, you get the ratings from other people. There's some stories and examples of, of how other people have thought about this decision in, embedded in there. Compares the options, the pros and cons of being at home versus um, moving to a residential. It helps people talk about how important it is to think about what this matters to you, not generically, but what really matters to you. Is it being at home with your dog? Is it being safe? Is it the privacy? Um, is it having your family members with you caring for you, or is it sparing them the burden of caring? And after talking with patients and caregivers and doing a series of surveys, we've come up with a, a list here that seems to be the real um, important factors that change their decision one way or the other, so we can really help them focus on those. Again, considering the resources, I put up the financial questions here, but there is a slew of resources questions that need to be asked about how people are going to think about long-term care. And once you have the information you need and you've really thought about it personally, we think about making a well-informed decision, and it does ask which, uh, which 
options you are most interested in. It doesn't ask you to choose one just yet. We want you to do that with a person. But it asks which one you're most um, interested in so that we can guide the discussion. And again, forming an action plan. What's your next step? And of course, we always provide lots of open text spaces for people to make notes for their physicians, their clinical team, their caseworkers, whoever it is that they want to ask questions of. It does present, print out a personal planning summary, which all in all has been the number one most requested item by every patient and family group we've ever talked to. Give me something I can print out and walk away with, because I may not remember it tomorrow anyways. I need to see it on paper, and I want to be able to look back at it again. So I mentioned that just to highlight that um, there's emerging research and policy coming out that's looking at how to change informed consent into informed patient choice. And decision aids are because of the Accountable Care Act, Affordable Care Act, Accountable Care Organizations, um, do stipulate that hospitals have shared decision-making centers, resource centers, um, and that decision aids are one way to provide legal documentation that a person has made a well-informed, values-consistent decision. I also want to highlight just at the end here the difference between determination and deliberation. And um, added this at the very last minute after some of the talks we've had. There is a slew of research out there that talks about people, even with mild or even with moderate dementia, that want to be engaged in the decision. They want to be considered, they want their voice to be heard, and they can be very rational about the reasons for one thing or the other. That does not mean they want to be responsible for making the decision. So you can, in a very good decision-making process, say, this is what is important to me, and I'm delegating you, Mr. Clinician. That's you. Naturally. Last one. I'll end. I, I get the hint. Um, but you can, in a good decision-making way, delegate that, that decision to someone else. Say, I understand that my brain's not working how I'd like it to. These are the things that are important to me. Now you make that decision for me. So how can you help? as care providers. Encourage everyone to plan ahead, plan ahead, plan ahead, discuss, discuss, discuss. Be sure that everyone involved, everyone involved in the decision is actually well informed, not just misinformed well. There are plenty of people who are misinformed well. Provide decision support and decision aids whenever possible. It's not always possible. Consider what matters most to each person and what matters to the family members is equally important. A lot of times we get so obligated with our duty to be a caregiver that we forget this is a relationship and a family. And we do need to value as clinicians and care providers, and for me as a decision counselor, we need, do need to value everyone in the family's um, rights, preferences, uh, and values in making these decisions. Consider what's best for everyone. Determine whether they have all the resources they need to actually get their decision. It is great to say that I want to go to a, uh, you know, a continuing care facility that offers everything under the sun. That's fantastic, but you have to have the resources to make it happen, or we need to find a way to get you the resources, one way or the other. And last of all, if at all possible, document. Document, document the conversation. Um, their decision, their action plan. Encourage people to write down action items, action steps that they can take. So thank you very much. I think we're, we're a little early. It's 4.30. That's great. I do have references on here in case anyone is interested. And these are some great resources that you might consider looking at. If there's any last questions, I'd be happy to take them. Does Fletcher Allen have anything? Not that like I'm aware of. Um, we do talk with him a bit. Um, and Dartmouth, you, people are welcome to walk in. What we're trying to do at the Aging Resource Center here, the Centers for Health and Aging, is to make this available across both states. So that's part of the reason we chose online. There is also an effort now to do more virtual dementia support, period. Um, I don't know how many of you have been over to the Aging Resource Center, but we have these big, beautiful screens 
were able to telecast, and some of you may have been some of the great programming that Laura's coordinated through the Geriatric Education Center that's telecasted to 22 different sites. So the same sort of thing, uh, we are actually in discussions with Vermont specifically to do that, to be able to reach out more and use technology well. Until then, I would refer people to a lot of the online. Thank you.